Well, good morning, everybody. Um, starting a slightly scary thing for me after six years of Ephesians. I'm, we're in a tag team effort on our book of Revelation, and today we'll be in chapter 2, looking at verses 8 to 11. If you could please turn there now. As we read and talk about this part of Revelation and as we go on to look at the other five churches that are left after this one, I want to encourage you to use both your personal and your corporate ears. What do I mean by that? Well, these letters are each directed specifically at one type of church and that may incline us to tune out because we think this particular description clearly speaks about another church. Yes, that rubbish one across the river. And so we don't really need to listen too hard. That may be true because the text may rightly speak of another church, one completely different to ours, but these scriptures also have a very personal message because we collectively are the church. So they also speak to me and to you as individuals as well. What is my character? What are my problems? What are my strengths and so on that are like or not like the churches that John is writing to? The truth is that we cannot ever afford to tune out because the Lord always speaks to us through his word if we listen. With that in mind, let's begin then. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now I don't know about you, but it often seems to me that the Lord's ability to know everything seems to only be used for the purpose of reminding us what we are doing wrong and that we never do anything right. But I think that's really a matter of perspective though because if we feel more cautioned than praised, it certainly has more to do with our love of sin than the Lord's character. And if we reflect on this, we know that it is true that no matter how often he disciplines us, that this can never outweigh what Jesus did for us on the cross in love. And this discipline is done in love and for the sake of love. Proverbs tells us, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. This text is not about discipline though because here we find a church that unlike most of the six addressed in the section section of uh, Revelation, there is no mention of any problem such as false teaching here. As we shall see, this text has a great deal to say about why perseverance in the face of adversity will pay off in the big picture view of things. So, let's see what we can learn from John today. Firstly, Smyrna. Apart from sounding like a very famous brand of vodka, what is Smyrna's claim to fame? Well, one meaning of that name is myrrh, which was an extract from a stiff branch tree with white flowers and a plum-like fruit. 
after myrrhs extracted from the wood, it soon hardened and it became an article of trade. And it had lots and lots of uses. For example, uh, you could use it in anointing oil, you could use it in perfume, uh, purification rites. Uh, we think about the gift for the baby Jesus, don't we, with three wise men brought. And it was also used in embalming. So it was very useful stuff. And you can imagine that it was very highly sought after and consequently it would be expensive. And apparently this city was its chief exporter in ancient times. Smyrna apparently could also mean bitter, but irrespective of which meaning you prefer, it was known as one of the greatest cities in the region and also one of the most beautiful. It had an excellent harbour at the end of a very well protected gulf and therefore it was a prosperous city for the, for the, uh, the surrounding areas. About 600 years before Revelation was written, it had been destroyed by the Persians, and then 200 years or so completely rebuilt. But interestingly, that was done according to a very comprehensive plan with an orderly layout. And that would have made it pretty unusual for cities of that vintage. Not just from the point of view of appearance, but it was probably a much nicer place to live than most because it was a bit newer and more orderly than the average city of the time. It still exists today, although it's now named Izmir and is one of the largest cities in Turkey. And just to show you that history tends to repeat itself, this, re- this renamed version is the result of Turkish soldiers setting fire to and completely destroying it in 1922. Now, if you had never read the scripture and only had the information that I've just given you, you would probably think that folk of that city enjoyed a pretty high standard of living. The very latest woven rolls reed chariots and Fisher and Pycost fire pits and so on. Yet, yet here in verse 9 we see that quite the opposite is described. Tribulation and poverty is the lot of the church in Smyrna and we know that it is crushing tribulation and abject poverty because the Greek words that are used for these terms mean exactly that, whereas there are other terms that are a lot less severe. So, why are our brothers and sisters from 2,000 years ago living in squalor when they are effectively in that exalted space north of the Bombays, the mythical land of the Orc? Well, we can't exactly be sure because Scripture doesn't specifically explain it, but we do know that Smyrna was very seriously into Rome and the ways of Rome. It was one of the first cities to worship the Roman emperor as a god, and also erected a temple for the worship of Tiberius, who was an emperor, during his reign. So in a situation like this, you can bet that those who had made some sort of accommodation with the gods of Rome were the ones who were going to be in the upper regions of the economic heap, and the more accommodation one made, the closer to the top of the heap one would be. So Christians who strongly and persistently denied the deity of the emperor would have next to no chance of participating in any sort of activity that would bring in reasonable wealth. And we also know at this time Christianity was not yet legally permitted, so that made them very vulnerable to exploitation, if not outright theft from any Jew or pagan who cared to do so, and it seems that from what we read here that many were of that mind. In the end though, while there are many different theories from different commentators, we shouldn't try to read too much into the why of this matter of poverty and tribulation. What matters far more is how the church of Smyrna conducted themselves in those circumstances 
and why they did so and what that means for us today. It is a notable contrast, however, that poor and persecuted Smyrna receives no condemnation from the Lord, whereas we will see in a little while how critically he sees Laodicea who lacked persecution but abounded in goods. And I'll say a bit more about that later. The motivation for the members of the church in Smyrna came from an understanding of just who is the one who is speaking to them through John. About how he had loved them and how he had died for them. And he, of course, is Jesus. Now, I know that Colfane has already pointed out to you the pattern of character, strength, problem, duty and promise that is repeated in these seven letters to the seven churches. But what is also repeated is some sort of, some sort of identification at the beginning of each letter. Because we can read in each one, these things says dot, 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 in this case, the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Speaks a question. Why then is it not enough for Jesus to just use his name? You know, when people wrote letters in those days, they began by identifying themselves instead of signing their, their name at the end. Why didn't he just do that? After all, we know who Jesus is, don't we? Surely that should be enough to emphasise the worth of what is being said. Well, I believe it's for the sake of assurance. Because our Lord and Saviour Jesus is not God apart. He doesn't stand off to one side in another space, critically examining us. He is God involved. He entered our world as one of us. He lived life just like anyone ever did, with joy and pain and suffering and temptation. Anything that any human has experienced has been directly experienced by Jesus too as a man. And because he has done these things too, we can know that he really understands. He has empathy for what we go through and therefore he ties his personal experiences to the promises he makes for each church. So, in the case of Smyrna, who better to promise eternal life to the faithful than the one who is eternal and was faithful unto death? Who began and will end all things that are made and who better to promise the crown of life than the one who won it by conquering death? When he says he knows about works and tribulation and poverty and blasphemy, he really does know. Not like one who has read it in a book, but as one who has felt the whip and the nails and the piercing of a sword. He knows about persevering through trial and he knows about how to win a very great prize. It is both the Lord's experience as a man and his demonstration of godhood made by rising from the tomb that gives substance and meaning to the promise made in verse 10, that those who call Lord Jesus in their lives need not fear suffering. And that's a very important promise, isn't it? Because suffering is common to every single human who has ever lived, who will live or is living now. Suffering entered the world along with sin, those two are inseparable, but it does seem that they are not necessarily proportional. What do I mean by that? Well, observation and personal experience informs us that there are those who do not do much wrong, 
And yet they seem to suffer a great deal. On the other hand, we find these folk who manage to offend every moral standard and yet party and prosper. Where is the justice in that? Well, we find it right here, folks. The Lord, the Eternal One, He knows, He knows. He knows our tribulation, He knows our work, He knows our blasphemy. And He will attend to justice at the appropriate time. Our understanding of justice is superficial because we only just see the outside layers. Just like the Jews described here, who outwardly at least attend to the necessary rituals of their Jewishness, but fail to see that it is what is in the heart and hands that really matters. So instead of being a testimony to the goodness and glory of God, they served another master, Satan. And so their certain destiny was to be the second and most terrible of deaths, not the glorious crown of life. What is a second death thing? Perhaps it needs more explanation. I mean, you die, and that's it, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's not true. Scripture tells us that for every single human being, physical death is just a point, and it's actually very near the beginning of an internal journey, not a final destination. (laughs) I think that's something to think about, isn't it? That you are an eternal being. And you're really near the beginning of that experience. The question is, what does that mean for you? I know that there are only two possibilities and they are contained right here in this text. And I've mentioned them both already. The crown of life and the second death. In plain English, the choice is eternal life shared with God or eternal death and suffering apart from Him. Heaven or hell? It's just those two. We choose and deserve hell when we disobey God and decide to sin. And we all do that. And we do it a lot. We choose but do not deserve the crown of life when we confess our sin. Resolve not to continue in it and accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. At that moment, that instant, the payment he made with his life by dying on the cross cancels out our debt of sin in God's eyes so that we can have a proper relationship with him one of father and child rather than opponents in a very one-sided war. And this is where we can begin to explore the second death thing. But to understand that, we need to talk about the first death, the one we usually think about as the end of all we know. So, what happens when we die? Well, believer and unbeliever both are immediately transported to another place, either one of eternal reward or one of eternal punishment. And there is a popular misconception that that will remain the status quo. Those who go to heaven will remain as some kind of spiritual being forever. In the case of heaven, floating on a cloud with a harp. Now that could be a mixed blessing. Because I can tell you, for example, that no one, no one would ever want to hear me playing a musical instrument. But scripture does not teach that. It teaches that both those who are saved and those who are damned will be reunited with new bodies when Christ returns to earth for a final time to judge and sentence all mankind. Depending on that sentence, with those bodies they will either go on to 
live for the rest of eternity on a new and perfect earth with God, the crown of life, or they will continue forever in darkness and torment apart from God. The second and final most terrible death. There is no grey space in between. The popular idea of purgatory, an intermediate destination between earth and heaven or hell, has no credible support in scripture. I'd have to admit it's a very nice idea that if you haven't done too good a job here on earth in terms of good works, that uh, provided you can take a bit of character building toasting and have enough folk back here praying for you, well then there's a second chance of entering heaven. And it's also a nice idea that you could do a good thing by praying for someone there. But it isn't true. There is no second chance at all. This doctrine finds its main support from the book of 2 Maccabees 12, which I hope none of you will have in your Bibles today. (laughs) That's because it comes from a thing called the Apocrypha. And this is a number of books that are included in Catholic Bibles, but are excluded from all Protestant Bibles because they contain a lot of inconsistencies when compared to the rest of Scripture. So, if you do have it in your Bible, please see me after the service in the pastor's office for a good whipping. There are lots of serious problems with this idea of an intermediate space. The doctrine of purgatory contradicts explicit New Testament instruction not to pray for the dead, that no third party is atonement by no third party atonement is possible by humans, and very worst of all, it suggests that Christ's atonement for sin on the cross is insufficient. So, long story short, just don't go there, please. But it remains that the second death has a much more intimate relevance than merely a scholarly discussion. Whether you like it or not, these two possibilities must confront every single human being. They must confront you. You have to choose crown or coffin. Which one will it be? I want to say you should choose wisely because you're going to be wearing one of those for a very, very long time. Let's return to the text. What we read here holds up a brilliant vision. It tells us that the crown of life is so glorious, it is so fulfilling, so perfect and worthy that not even the most awful suffering we can imagine here on earth, even death itself, need not cause us to fear. Now please don't misunderstand me. I I definitely don't want to cause offence by seeming to minimise suffering because It is real. It hurts deeply. It cuts. But I believe that by contemplating the anguish of our very worst experience and then imagining how good the life that the Lord promises must be to make that anguish inconsequential by comparison will help us to understand that it is a conspicuously exceptional life indeed that is being offered to us by the cross. That was a very long sentence. So I feel I need to try to illustrate. You know that shiny silver ball down by the side of the river? Yep. Imagine 
Imagine that was my hurt, okay? And I, and I got up to it like this and I tried to get my arms around it. Okay? I had them stretched right out. If that's how much, if that's how much my hurt is, then how big is what the Lord offers? I kind of think that it would be like me trying to embrace the sun. That's the difference. And this is why John writes that although the Smyrnaeans might be physically poor, they are spiritually rich. And if that is the scope of the second life, then I wonder how terrible the second death is. This then is the essence of the message to the church at Smyrna. Jesus says to them, I know things are bad. (laughs) In fact, they're going to get worse. Some of you are probably going to even die. But hang on in there because the very greatest of all rewards is awaiting your faithfulness. So how does that message read for us today? Well, it's exactly the same, isn't it? None of these problems have gone away. Poverty, tribulation and blasphemy still abound. In fact, it seems that they get worse and worse every day. So what does that mean for us here at Wanganui East Baptist? Well, I think there are three things that we need to think about. Firstly, I can see a time coming, not so far off, when we are going to have to take a stand for what we believe with the certainty that we are not going to be in the popular majority. Fundamentalist, reformed Christians who have a literal belief in Scripture, and by and large, that's us here in this room, folks, well, we are increasingly seen as fringe loonies. Way behind the times, intolerant, foolish, out of step with the brave new world of freedom. And what a nonsense idea that freedom is because no one can enjoy any kind of earthly freedom unless it comes at somebody else's expense. Even if I breathe freely, you will be sharing my garlic. At the moment we are openly able to meet and speak, but I fear it will not be too long before these rights come under attack, not just verbally, but legally. So, how are we personally and corporately going to meet these challenges? Are we going to bend and conform, or stand and be persecuted? I find this to be quite a frightening idea, but it is coming even here in little Wanganui, the hub of the universe. Secondly, if there was ever any argument needed against the doctrine of prosperity or that being saved will sort out all of your problems in a flash, then here it is, right on the Bible. This text plainly states that God is fully aware of Smyrna's problems. But his response is not to strike down their accusers with fire or to fill their pockets with gold and jewels. He could have done that. But in his wisdom, for his glory and our good, he allows them to continue in their suffering and their work for him. Well, today he hasn't changed that plan. It's still true for us. We serve God's will, not our wishes, and that may very well include real hardship. It seems contrary. But however bad things are in a moment, it will turn out that that moment is the very 
best thing that God can make for you. I don't understand it, but I know that he will work it out. He, and consequently we, will win in the end. And I know that sounds a bit weird and unfair, and perhaps you hate hearing that, but that's how it is. He who pays the piper calls the tune. And so like Smyrna, we need to look up and ahead and do the Lord's work. Thirdly, as much as we may love to hear this message that all will be well if we just hang on, we are probably going to be a bit less comfortable if we ask ourselves a few questions that arise from this passage. For example, are we here in Webseed, the church at Smyrna, do we rate the Lord's approval? And if so, why? Then if persecution and poverty might be some measure of faithfulness, what evidence of those are found here amongst us? Now I'm not suggesting that we should go and search out beatings and slander or live in a cave as a kind of trophy and proof of our faith or that they invariably go together because they don't. But I'd have to say that they can be found as a consequence of faith lived out truly. And thus we must take our courage in our hands and ask ourselves these uncomfortable questions. If I have not experienced persecution, then why not? Too comfortable while others have need. So, what will we do with the answers? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful book. In it you you address us so directly. There's no question about what you're saying. Thank you for the questions it provokes in us. Thank you for the comfort that it gives us. This wonderful vision of the future you have for those who take Jesus as Lord. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would get a real sense of that in our lives so that we know what is important, that it is not things or experiences, not a bucket list, but your service and your glory that matters. Go with us as we leave this price, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.